You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that slime mold has found a way to feed its next generation. And that's because researchers have discovered that social amoebas secrete proteins that help preserve what you could call a starter kit for its offspring. This is a kind of slime mold from soil called, I'm going to try this, Dictyostellum discoldium, and it eats bacteria. And some wild forms of that species basically farm the bacteria and pass them along in spore cases that give the next generation of amoebas the beginnings of a local patch of prey. And tests found that the trick to keeping the parental immune system from killing the starter crop of bacteria is a surge of proteins called lectins. And lectins create a different way for those amoebas to treat bacteria as actual symbionts inside the cells instead of as prey or as an infection, according to molecular cell biologists at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Now, the reason this is interesting is that lectins are a protein you may have heard of. Uh, You heard about them in the Bulletproof Diet. You heard about them in the Plant Paradox uh, from a recent interview with Dr. Stephen Gundry. And lectins are signaling molecules that, turns out, have all sorts of interesting effects throughout the body and throughout all of Mother Nature. And this is a new and interesting use of them. And these findings, just as a general biology sort of thing, marked another chapter in a story that's been upending decades of what we thought we knew about amoebas and bacteria. And this basic, almost alien scenario is still true that these kind of amoebas that they like to call dicti start life as single cells, but when food dwindles, they come together into a bigger multicellular slug-shaped creature with eight to 10 kinds of cells and the ability to crawl. (laughs) And then it develops into something more like a fungus with a stalk holding up a case of spores to start the next generation of amoebas. Now, if that doesn't sound an awful lot like that one uncle you don't like, well, (laughs) think about that. (laughs) what if there was a way to feel younger for longer well there is your body needs something called the nad plus molecule to help you age well when you're young your body makes a lot of nad plus and that helps you make energy it helps you keep your dna healthy absorb nutrients well and it protects your cells from stress but once you hit about 30 your nad plus levels start to drop The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. 
For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Now, I think I did a terrible job in my perpetual quest to be great at foreshadowing because I actually dropped a name, <laughs> Dr. Stephen Gundry. And he is on <laughs> Bulletproof Radio again today, but he is not here to talk about lectins, which was the topic of his last book. He's here to talk about something new and amazing. Uh, Dr. Gundry is a renowned heart surgeon, including a lot of background in robotic surgery as an early pioneer in that, a celebrity doctor, four times New York Times bestselling author, medical researcher, and just a, an amazing, in, intriguing human being. And he just wrote about a topic that you know is near and dear to me, which is anti-aging and longevity. His new book, The Longevity Paradox, How to Die Young at a Ripe Old Age, just came out. And he talks about stuff that isn't lectins. He talks about gut health, a whole new side of research for him in it. And you are going to dearly love this interview. And I know that because I've already had a chance before this interview to sit down and talk through in detail uh, what Dr. Gundry uh, has done. And also, of course, I read the pre-release version of his book. So, uh, Dr. Gundry, welcome to the show. Dave, pleasure to be back again and chat with you some more. All right, I'm scrolling through a list of qualifications for you that I have in my preparation notes, and it's hard to pick <laughs> which ones. <laughs> I, I think people, uh, you know, you hear a show like this, and you think, oh, there's these people who come on, and and it can sound like bragging uh, when if you were to list all of your your stuff there. But you look at at your pioneering work in Zeno transplantation, this idea that, oh, how are we going to take an organ from one species and put it in another species like humans? And okay, that's kind of cool. You're one of the original 20 investigators of the first implantable left ventricular assist device. And you've created multiple techniques for cardiac surgery. Uh, you're called the father of robotic surgery. And, uh, you know, let's see, uh, you're a pioneer in infant and pediatric heart transplants, and you've done more of those than anyone else in the world. So you're basically a super medical badass. <laughs> I guess, I, yeah, I'm a uh, medical renaissance man, somebody recently told me. So uh, that's a high, high praise. I'll take it. You were also, uh, for two terms, president of the board of directors at the American Heart Association's Desert Division, uh, which is true. Which is really interesting because uh, when you talk about uh, the health of, say, your arteries and things like that, uh, oftentimes you start talking about diet a lot more than we used to, uh, and it seems like you don't have a as much of a mainstream view as I would expect from someone who's been a cardiac surgeon. Before we get into this longevity thing, uh, I'm just going to assume that not dying of a heart attack is an important part of longevity. <laughs> yeah, you know, statistically, uh, statistically, most of us will leave here with either your heart stopping or cancer eating you up, statistically. Yep. So, uh, yeah, heart, heart disease is, is right up there on the things we ought to be worried about. Why is longevity a paradox, Dr. Gundry, because it, it seems like not dying, like you said, heart attacks, cancer, maybe a little bit of diabetes and Alzheimer's thrown in there. Uh, but other than that, where's the paradox? Well, I think the paradox is most of us, including you, Dave, uh, want to get old, live a long time. But when we look at what that means, at least in our current uh, 
generation, it doesn't look very good. It looks like uh, having knee replacements, hip replacements, having stents, uh, maybe having a cancer or two cut out or zapped. And for a lot of people, it looks like sitting in assisted living or a nursing home and not remembering your family's names. And that doesn't look very good. So the paradox is, yeah, we all, you know, we all want to keep going, but how it looks keeping going doesn't look very good. And the whole book is, okay, it doesn't have to be that way. All right. If it doesn't have to be that way, uh, why not? Uh, Simplistically, uh, it turns out that we age... uh, because Hippocrates was right 2,500 years ago, that all disease begins in the gut. And I've added to his belief that not only does all disease begin in the gut, but all disease can end in the gut. And interestingly enough, from little tiny creatures, you were talking about amoebas. Well, there's a, there's a wonderful little worm that all of us know in longevity research called C. elegans. Mm-hmm. And C. elegans, uh, everything that C. elegans has predicted in this little tiny, little, small creature, uh, it happened in longevity, has been confirmed in every animal studied, including rhesus monkeys and at least if you ask David Sinclair at Harvard, he'll mm-hmm. tell you that it happens in humans. So, C. elegans, this model shows that even in this little tiny worm, it has bacteria in its primitive gut, and those bacteria interact with the single cell surface of its gut, at, just like we have a single cell fr- surface of our gut. And as the bacteria slowly or rapidly break down that wall, literally, I call them hordes at the gate. As that wall breaks down, that initiates the process of aging. And the stronger that wall is, the less broken down it is, the less aging occurred. Because aging at its core is inflammation. And I and others believe that inflammation is from leaky gut period. All right. Now, that is a, a really big statement. Longtime listeners and fans, anyone who's read The Plant Paradox or anyone who's read The Bulletproof Diet uh, knows that leaky gut matters. And in fact, there's been so many people on the show that, that I think in terms of functional medicine and even some of, of traditional Western medicine, we've all come to the conclusion that there's probably something like a leaky gut and there's enough real science about the width of gap junctions in the gut that we can, we can say, all right, we're going to agree as medical people. Uh, however, I've also heard a lot of people say that, well, there are other causes besides lipopolysaccharides leaking through the leaky gut. Uh, and I mean, that, that's probably the most extreme statement that I, I think I've heard you make, that it's only caused by that. I mean, what about air pollution? Is, is it that air pollution causes leaky gut, which then causes LPS? Actually, you know, it's interesting. I was just talking, I was just thinking about that last night um, because uh, people know, maybe they don't know, uh, I, am, I was a professor at Loma Linda University um, for most of my career. And Loma Linda is the only blue zone 
uh, in America. It's the only American Blue Zone that exists. And when I moved to Loma Linda in the mid to late 80s, uh, Loma Linda had so much smog that uh, my, my longtime colleague and friend, Leonard Bailey, who recruited me there, said, I, uh, I don't like to breathe air that I can't see. I don't trust it. <laughs> <laughs> and Loma Linda is surrounded by 10,000 foot mountains. And half of the year in those days, you could not see those mountains because of the smog. And yet, these uh, are the longest living humans in America. Now, the smog is, is clearly much better as, as any of us who live in Southern California still. But um, these people were doing this despite the smog. And I'm always impressed with the data from the Catavans, those interesting chain-smoking New Guinea uh, residents who smoke like fiends, and yet they live well into their mid-90s with no medical care. They have no, epi no evidence of heart disease, no strokes, no cancer, and yet they smoke like fiends. So... Um, I think if we have a good system, and you and I have talked about this, if we have a good system of, and I hate the word detoxification, I just hate it. I know, uh, it has so many connotations, but I don't know a better one. <laughs> I know, it's, it's just an awful word. Um, we, can, we can deal with these environmental stressors. Ah, so, so your point is that we're wired to deal with whatever Mother Nature throws at us, uh, as long as our gut bacteria works. Yeah, no. Right. I, I like that perspective. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 like 5G, let, let's say. Uh, I, I do know, I've seen plenty of evidence that certain kinds of EMFs in certain amounts and et cetera are not good for us biologically simply because I have a $50,000 pulsed electromagnetic frequency device that changes bone density. So I know my body responds to EMFs. That is sure. factual. And so I, I look at that, and I say, all right. I know that there are things that are outside the realm of my gut bacteria, but I also believe they're probably affected by that stuff as well. So that isn't though something that mother nature throws at you. Uh, like, are, are there forces that man is unleashing that affect longevity that your gut bacteria are just not equipped to handle? Yeah. Roundup. Oh, there you go. Okay. Cause that kills your gut bacteria. Yeah. Th thank goodness. The, the great people who brought us uh, roundup, uh, determined it was safe for humans because it only affects bacteria and we're not bacteria. <laughs> Sorry, I tried not to laugh when I said it, but yeah, you know, it's the the you know, glyphosate was patented as an antibiotic. It wasn't patented as an herbicide, it wasn't patented, you know, it was patented as an antibiotic. So these these wonderful people um knew <laughs> that it did, that it did this. You know, they knew bacteria used the shikimate pathway. And, but don't worry, it just kills bacteria. Um, everybody wants to kill bacteria. Yeah, it's, it's a very weird dynamic. Have you seen the research? It just came out, and if you haven't, we don't have to go there, but they found enormous numbers of extremophile bacteria at something like a mile deep. And, and they're now hypothesizing that much of the crust of the earth is essentially full of little tiny life forms and bacteria that they didn't think about. And that when they took that into account that the total mass of bacteria on the planet is way bigger than they thought it was. Did, did you come across that research? 
Yeah, and you know, and I even mentioned that in the longevity paradox. Oh, I, I didn't see that. Okay, that's cool. Not, not that particular oh. thing, but you know, the original life forms uh, were uh, living on hydrogen sulfide. Yes, and uh, I think I I make some wild statements that uh, our mitochondria may be quite unique, uh, along with uh, naked mole rats that our mitochondria, uh, being ancient bacteria, actually can do very well using hydrogen sulfide as an energy source. And I also make the rather unique statement, which is true, that humans and naked mole rats, and naked mole rats are the longest living rats. My, my spirit animal, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, just as an aside, when I was a professor at Loma Linda, I had this huge... Uh, Technicolor purple pink uh, poster of a naked mole rat sitting behind my desk uh, That's from, awesome. <laughs> from the San Diego Zoo, and people would come in, you know, grand professor of heart surgery, and, and there's a giant naked mole rat behind <laughs> me. <Okay. laughs> so, so anyhow, uh, humans and naked mole rats have the lowest levels of hydrogen sulfide uh, dissolved in our blood. And my preposition is that's because we actively extract it uh, like naked mole rats. So uh, I want you to ponder that, Dave. I, I have a, I, you're probably one of the few people who would have thought through all these different pathway things. And right, here's a question for you. So we know hydrogen sulfide tends to be toxic, right? It gives you a, a headache if you remember college chemistry lab, if you're in there. <laughs> well, um, I have uh, relatively strong mitochondria now in that I feed them very well. I take care of them, and I've written books about that. And that's probably because maybe I don't have strong mitochondria genetically, or I have weird ones, uh, maybe because of the 15 years of antibiotics that I took or something. But yeah. I had this this thing that's repeatable. Every time it happens, uh, uh, I get the same effects. And I go to a local beach here on Vancouver Island where there's a ton of seaweed that washes up. And it smells like rotten eggs. It's full of hydrogen sulfide. And I feel like crap for two days. I mean, really bad. I have to get in my hyperbaric oxygen chamber to turn my brain back on. Otherwise, I'm just walking through mud all the time. And I used to just think it was me because I was nuts. And I found some studies from France where they actually found deer that were dying from the air near near uh, seaweed that was making that stinky smell because of hydrogen sulfide. And it has the effect on mitochondria just like cyanide in, in that it suppresses mitochondrial respiration. However, my kids and my wife are playing there and they're just, they say it smells like eggs. It's no problem. So why is this knocking me out, Dr. Gundry? Oh, we, we just, you know, Dave, 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 we just got to get your mitochondria in better shape. Uh, we... <laughs> We've got to, maybe, maybe we need to have your gut microbiome talk to your mitochondria better. Uh, as you know, they are, as I talk about, the sisterhood. And I think we can go down so many wild rabbit holes that, you know, we inherited if our gut microbiome from our mother. And mitochondrial DNA are inherited from the mother. And I think that's not by accident. And these engulfed bacteria, which have become our mitochondria, uh, I and others believe, and there's now evidence that talk to each other and tell each other how things are going uh, in their respective worlds. And I think we've been incredibly naive uh, about the interplay between that world 
and our world. And as I talk about in the longevity paradox, we have, I think, uploaded most of our information processing to our bacterial cloud that lives in us, on us, around us, because they have far more genes than we do. They reproduce virtually instantaneously, and so they can do fantastic information processing. And many of us think that perhaps life forms on Earth, particular animal life forms, exist as a home for bacteria to uh, prosper on Earth. And that's really do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Yeah. But we'll, we'll find out. I am 100,000% convinced that uh, from my mitochondria's perspective, I'm this neat walking Petri dish and that they're in charge before I'm in charge. I get the dregs. Yeah. And that's the whole genesis of, the, of my Headstrong book. What, and as a computational computer science guy who studied distributed systems emergent behavior, <laughs> our ego is an emergent behavior of bacterial operating systems, which is number one, don't die right now. Number two, don't starve. Number three, have a lot of sex. And yeah, yeah that, that's pretty much every bad decision I've ever made uh, with respect to <laughs> dating, eating, and procrastination came from you know my mitochondria, not from me. So it's their fault. Right, but when you realize they're also both managing the gut bacteria, so maybe like that slime mold, they have a little pouch of bacteria they hold. We're kind of like a big slime mold, right? But maybe you know, maybe it's the other way around. <laughs> the bacteria in our gut are sort of managing our mitochondria, and really it's symbiosis, right? It's right. it's yin and yang. Right. Yep. Well, what I want to understand. I love that you think that way. You and I, every time we've had a chance to sit down, which is now more time than I can easily remember, I'm always happy about it just because it's it's always it makes me think. But there aren't a lot of people with your, I'm going to call it pedigree, just your incredible string of success using robots to do surgery. Like the president of the American Heart Association, you're supposed to have horns, and and you know be one of those if you don't take antibiotics every 2 days you're a bad person and trust me i'm wearing a white lab coat and i have a stethoscope w- like what the heck made you such a rebel like, like how how do you keep one foot in that world with respect of your colleagues and another foot saying oh my god the bacteria are in charge like like how do you coexist uh <laughs> i just keep quoting george patton if everybody's thinking alike then somebody isn't thinking and <laughs> That's a damn good quote. I did not know that was George Patton. That's George Patton. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know Carl Sagan said you, you have to, you know, science only moves forward by defying conventional wisdom. And, I mean, you, you look at what was once, uh, you know, heresy. Like, I mean, like, you know, Lister's theory of antisepsis was, I mean, heresy. I mean, that's ridiculous. You... You, obviously, uh, you, you don't need to kill bacteria. Bacteria have nothing to do with an infection and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, and the guy was ridiculed. I mean, basically, it almost drove him insane. And you look at all these, you know, heretics that eventually, you know, were right. So I think you, the, the purpose of science is to, to disprove your hypothesis. I mean, you, you set up an experiment to prove yourself wrong. And only if you can 
not prove yourself wrong? Does, does it make it, you know, right? And so, you know, uh, so I, I mean, for instance, uh, I invented a way of protecting the heart uh, during heart surgery by pumping preservatives backwards in the coronary venous system, the coronary sinus, because there weren't any blockages in the veins of the heart. And if you were operating because of blockages, you couldn't get past blockages to protect the heart. And it became very popular. It's still very popular. But when I first presented my human data at the uh, American Association of Thoracic Surgery, Dr. Denton Cooley, one, one of the great fathers of heart surgery, who uh, I got to know very well, um, stood up afterwards. And he says, young Dr. Gundry here is trying to tell us that you should give the heart an enema <laughs> and, and the and the enema is going to come out of the lesbian veins. They're actually called the Bezian veins, but those were the days that you could say those things. And so in front of, you know, 5,000 eminent surgeons, he's saying, Dr. Gundry is giving the heart an enema and it's coming out the lesbian veins. And, <laughs> and so, we, so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, now it's the widely, widest used, used device to protect the heart in surgery. So... You know, sometimes you just got to say uh, there's got to be a better way. There's always a better way. Uh, well, a better way. I, uh, I, I appreciate your mindset on that. And I love it that you've got your lens turned on aging. Uh, and it's, it's awesome that in the longevity paradox, you start out with that idea that uh, it's our bacteria, not our genes that made us human. Uh, and man, you've, you're, you've nailed that. That, that is that's what's happening. We wouldn't be humans. We'd be slime molds or something because we wouldn't move around and make power without having roots in the soil. And that would suck. Um, and then you, you get into, though, the seven deadly myths of aging, uh, which I think our listeners would love to know something about. Uh, I, I found that it was very hard to put down your book uh, because you really, um, you really tell it in a good way. But walk... Walk through like the Mediterranean diet myth. Tell me about that one. Uh, that made me happy, by the way. So uh, it is true that uh, two of the blue zones are in the Mediterranean, uh, Crete and Sardinia. And a third one that I named that I think most everyone accepts is a, is a blue zone. The people of Acciaroli, Italy, south of Naples. Uh, more people over 100 years of age in that town than anywhere in the world. 30% of the population is over 100. And so you look at the Mediterranean diet and you say, well, that, that's clearly a longevity diet. So what's in the Mediterranean diet? Well, the Mediterranean diet uh, does have grains, does have beans. And as I show in the book, there are actually some convincing studies that Cereal grains and beans are a negative part of the Mediterranean diet. That is, <laughs> amen, counter. brother. Oh, sorry, I just had to say yeah. that. <laughs> don't that eat them. <laughs> That's right. They don't like you. It's countered by the positive effects of the Mediterranean diet, and that is fruits and vegetables, seafood, and lots of olive oil and red wine. Um, interestingly enough, the Acciarolis. Uh, do not eat bread, do not eat pasta, do not eat cereal grains, 
Uh, actually, because they say they can't afford them, I've, I've interviewed them. Uh, but they do eat lentils that have been soaked for days and days and days. The water changed and then cooked for quite a long time. And even in Tuscany, they cook their beans for, they soak them uh, for days and then they cook them in pots for days. And I think this, this teaching of how to detoxify lentils are, is, and, and other pulses has been lost. So anyhow, uh, I think one of the smartest research the Cleveland Clinic ever did, uh, as you know, the Cleveland Clinic invented a test that identifies this interesting protein called TMAO. Yes. That is a pretty interesting, at least from their standpoint, nasty thing uh, that uh, hurts blood vessels. Let's just leave it at that. And TMAO is, among other things, made uh, by our gut bacteria from animal proteins, certain animal proteins, particularly carnitine and choline. And interestingly enough, fish has preformed TMAO. And if TMAO was all that bad for you, then why is it that several of the blue zones are fish eaters? And fish, in every study done uh, in epidemiology, always wins over red meat in terms of longevity. So TMAO, we could debate TMAO all day, but to the Cleveland Clinic's credit, they said, you know, the folks in the Mediterranean, um, they eat fish, they eat salami, they eat prosciutto, uh, they don't have much heart disease, what gives? So they, they found a little uh, chemical in olive oil, balsamic vinegar, and red wine, uh, 331-dimethylbutanol, paralyzes gut bacteria enzymes so they cannot make TMAO out of choline and carnitine. And lo and behold, that may be the key of the Mediterranean diet is lots of olive oil, uh, red wine in moderation, and uh, balsamic vinegar. So have some. Interesting. So I, I've written several pieces about TMAO um, on the blog uh, going back quite a bit because it's one of the things that radical vegans use uh, to try and say you should never eat an animal protein again. Uh, however, it's interesting. I've quantified my gut bacteria with the Viome test, uh, and uh, I'm an advisor to Viome, an investor in the company, and have talked to the chief scientists, and I've run other companies' tests. My gut bacteria don't make TMAO when I eat meat, and that's probably because I don't eat industrial meat and because I have a gut bacteria set that works pretty well. Uh, so how is that? Like maybe the other things. Heck, for all we know, eating lentils causes the bacteria that make TMAO to form. Like, I, I don't think we know all of the pathways there yet. Um, so no, in fact, I, I've got two vegans, mm -hmm. uh, lifelong vegans who are in their mid seventies that we've been doing the TMAO test on them. Gosh, I don't know, since it was invented maybe four years ago, these guys just, uh, this won't, won't mean anything. TMAO should be less than six, according to the Cleveland clinic. They have their TMOs at 175. And I mean, just ridiculously high number. And we've we've talked to the Cleveland Clinic with and they go, that's impossible. Uh, it can't be. They're vegans. And yet every time we test them, they're up like this. So uh, you're right. I think there's a whole lot of things we don't understand about TMAO yet. So. 
Cool. Well, I, I love that you talk about that, but you're, you're basically saying the myth of the Mediterranean diet is whole grains and beans and all that sort of stuff. And that's not what makes the Mediterranean diet healthy, that right. those are things that are working against the Mediterranean diet, even though the combination of sunshine and clean air and community yep. and olives and all the other stuff that they do, that it, it works out well. And, and this is a really important point. And that we all do things that are good for us and we do things that are bad for us. And like, if you could do less of the bad and more of the good, it's amazing what happens. But doing less of the bad is step one in all of my works. Like, could, could we just not be wasteful? So if every morning you wake up and after you brush your teeth, you smack yourself in the face three times and you say, well, have a pretty good day after that. You could still wake up, brush your teeth and not smack yourself in the face three times and have a better day, even though you were doing pretty good. And it's that mindset, like it's okay to not do that stuff, even if we thought it worked. So I, I feel like you're just all over that. What's another one? Tell me about growth hormones and youthfulness. So, uh, you know, it's, as, as we've talked about before, your, your job is uh, to grow up, uh, mate, have a baby or two and make sure they're okay and then get out of the way so that uh, your, your kids, uh, have something to eat. And so early on growth hormone is, is a really good thing. Uh, but as we get older, there is nothing in us that we want to grow. Uh, so I'm convinced, uh, along with David Sinclair that, uh, making sure we don't stimulate mTOR or TOR, uh, with uh, energy sources, appropriate energy sources that will stimulate it, as we get older, is a pretty smart thing to do. Uh, we could we could debate that, I suppose, all day long. Yeah. But uh, my my research in my patients and looking at the data says that if you have a low insulin-like growth factor one IGF one as you age, that promotes good aging. In fact, I can't think of an exception. I study a lot of people, super agers above 95, early 100s. These people all run IGF-1s of 70 to 80. And this correlates with uh, good aging. On the other hand, a high IGF-1, uh, as you age above 200, correlates extremely well with developing cancer because you think about it insulin like growth factor growth factor and why would you want to stimulate things to grow uh, as you get older like i say we're either gonna most of us are gonna leave with heart disease and or cancer don't you want growth to maybe make that endothelium the lining of your cells to i mean don't you want uh youthful recovery, which equals growth of all the tissues in your body as you age so that you can maintain youthfulness? You actually, there's pretty good data showing that VEGF is a pretty nasty compound in terms of increasing the thickness of your blood vessels and certainly stimulate blood cell, uh, blood vessel growth towards cancer cells. Uh, plus this little uh, sugar molecule in beef, lamb, and pork, which is new 5GC, we know that cancer cells use it to stimulate VEGF. So now VEGF uh, is not a good thing as you age. What if you have extremely low VEGF? What happens? 
Uh, depends on how old you are. Like I say, you're you're designed to to grow. We're a slow growing creature, um, which I get into one of the other myths about milk does the body good. Milk uh, from bovines uh, or other ungulates has huge amounts of growth factor because these cows, these sheep, cows, goats are supposed to grow quickly to avoid predation. And so you want a lot of growth factor in milk. On the other hand, humans are slow growing. And we don't want to grow quickly. And the last thing I suggest for people's health, particularly kids' health, is don't give them milk from some other species uh, because it contains growth hormones appropriate for rapidly growing species, and that's not us. What about, uh, say, milk fat versus milk with all of its proteins intact? So the good news about milk fat is it doesn't have uh, growth <laughs> That's fat. why butter versus milk, people. <laughs> Yeah, it does. Anyway. Now, just as an aside, uh, as you may or may not know, um, I'm supposedly one of the world experts on the dietary treatment of the ApoE4 gene. These carrier the quote Alzheimer's gene, and about 30% of people carry this gene. Saturated fats, particularly animal saturated fats, uh, in my studies, in Dale Bredesen's studies, uh, clearly increase small, dense LDLs. Now, we could argue uh, whether those guys are bad or good for us and whether it really matters. But I think the ApoE4 uh, lipoprotein transport system does not move cholesterol in and out of brain cells properly. So I think uh, if it was me, that would not be high on my list of things to have in my diet. Can you have some? Yes, you can, of course. But that would not be high on my list. Now, what percentage of people uh, have this APOE? It's, it's somewhere around 10% of people have a double mutation on that. Yeah, so the double mutation, 4-4, is only about 1% to 2% of the population. But about 25 to 28% of the population has the single mutation, 3-4. Uh, so that's a lot of people. So you're saying about 25% of people would want to uh, limit the amount of saturated fat that they have. Correct. And you know that that matches. In fact, uh, one of the one of the older posts uh, that I've written, I talk about here's what to do uh, if your blood lipids go up or down on a particular diet, uh, right? Whether or not you know your APOE three and four uh, status, uh, and I'm a I'm a three and four. But I, I look at my triglycerides, uh, I look at my uh, HDL, I look at cholesterol, I look at particle size. Uh, I don't have particularly high SD, um, which is supposed to, well, I don't even know if you want to call it the bad type of LDL, because it used to be LDL itself was bad, but we'll say that there's yeah. questions about it. Correct. So I, I, I look at all that and I say, all right, if, if someone's doing stuff right, the first thing you do is you say, all right, do I have a methylation problem if my inflammation is still up, which is a different pathway? So then you, and right. I do have that problem. So then you say, all right, do I need to take the methylated folic acid and B12 and P5P form of vitamin B6? And I find somewhere around 10% of people who say, all right, I went on the bulletproof diet, you know, I follow this lifestyle. Uh, and I and I still have high inflammatory markers. I lost weight, my brain turned back on, <laughs> but I don't like my numbers. 
right? And so then, okay, what do you do? And for some time, for some people, they stick around for six months doing this kind of eating, and then the high LDL drops. And I, the theory there is that it's because they dumped all the fat from their liver, and it took a while for them to drop their liver fat. And if it doesn't normalize, then all right, like let's look at what's going on there. And then the recommendation in that post was, hey, maybe you should have some more olive oil. And you, it's okay to dial back. And the cool thing about Bulletproof Coffee is you can put a lot of butter in there like I did when I started because I was starving for the stuff. And I, I get to the point where it's like, you know, give me a tablespoon or so. Like I, that, That's enough. And that's what I'm having in the morning. And you know, sometimes if it's going to be a really big day and it's all I'm having or whatever, I might do two. But I put the brain octane in there, which is saturated, but is not that way. The, the point here is permission to experiment based on your own data. Because if 25% of you should be having less saturated fat, that's okay. And you shouldn't be out there bathing in butter or bacon, but whether you should be eating none of it ever is another question entirely. And that's my next question for you. Okay, so actually I'm gonna add MCT, medium chain triglycerides, mm -hmm. do not get absorbed via chylomicrons. Exactly. And so I even tell my ApoE4s that you can have your MCT oil, but I would stay away from the other long-chain saturated fats that uh, are present in, in coconut oil. So for that 1% of highly sensitive people. For the real, yeah, and the other thing, since you brought up LDL, there is, and I talk about this in the book, you can put someone into sepsis with, uh, you can even use LPSs and non-living bacteria, and they will go into septic shock, and interestingly, their LDL cholesterols, anyone who's septic, their LDL cholesterols go sky high. And there is an interesting theory that LDL is there to grab L LPSs. And so people with a high LDL may in fact be continually exposing themselves to an LPS burden. Uh, the other thing yes. that I think that so many people miss is people who are hypothyroid, and even though their numbers may mm -hmm. be okay, your LDLs will be high. And when you get your thyroid hormones fixed, or you actually get recepting of thyroid hormones, and quite honestly, heavy metals are a really good way of blocking thyroid hormones, and actually lectins are a good way of blocking <laughs> we thyroid so hormones. I mean, it's a really good way of doing it. So uh, you you may actually have a thyroid hormone receptor problem as the cause of your elevated LDL, and it's not the you know pound of bacon you're eating every morning. Could be. Uh, you know, I, I just dearly love that you're dialed in at that level. So you're listening to this saying, what was LPS again? LPS is lipopolysaccharides. These are toxins made by gut bacteria that can sneak through a not well-functioning gut and cause systemic inflammation. And in Headstrong, you write about how LPSs cause inflammation in the brain. I called it muffin top in the brain and, and all that. But something else, and this goes back to the Bulletproof Diet, the other thing that will raise LDL is mycotoxins, whether they're from eating grain that has field toxins or storage toxins or from breathing it in your environment. And this is a major cause. I did Moldy Movie, by the way, it's free viewing, moldymovie.com. Uh, and you can actually see two weird things happen. One is mold itself can drive up LDL. 
because LDL will bind to mold toxins because mold toxins are structurally almost identical um, to uh, cholesterol. Believe it or not, they're, they're very similarly done. They're called lipophoric toxins. They like fat. And you get this very interesting thing where if you get mold in your food, it opens up the tight junctions in the gut, which allows lipopolysaccharide to go through even more effectively. So you have this whole system of things that all work together. But end of the day, the research that blew me away was that the people who live very long, what do their LDL levels typically look like in your research? Well, the Kittimans are, are actually pretty interesting. Um, they were extensively evaluated in terms of their LDL levels by Stefan Lindeberg, who is now unfortunately uh, deceased. But they he compared them to Swedes. And they definitely do have lower levels of uh, LDLs. These are the smoking coconut oil and, and starch-eating crazy yeah. people who live yeah. in the jungle with good gut yeah. bacteria. 30% okay. of their diet is coconut oil or coconut. And uh, about 60% of their diet is taro root. And, and the rest is nicotine, right? Yeah, and the rest <laughs> is nicotine. <laughs> and uh, so they do tend to run lower. Um I don't, again, the whole, remember, all of these are theories of heart disease. And we have to remember that they are theories. And for instance, statin drugs do not work by lowering LDL. They work by blocking toll-like receptors on our immune system. And it, they work by blocking toning down inflammation. We didn't know that they worked like that until the Nobel Prize for Medicine was won identifying toll-like receptors in 2012. But we thought it was because LDL lowered, but that was actually a side effect of the statin that we could measure. And until we realized that statins worked in a totally different mechanism, most practicing physicians still actually believe that statin drugs work by lowering LDL. They don't. They work by blocking, they hit the mute button on TLRs, toll-like receptors. And that's how they work. Now, do you know what the very first statin drug was? Well, it was actually red yeast rice. <laughs> uh, before that, actually. Uh, what? Nystatin. Oh, yeah. It's an antifungal. It turns out every one of the statin drugs has antifungal effects. That's how uh, they were discovered, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating to me. And, and I was just on the phone yesterday with a lead uh, mycology researcher from Case Western. And uh, this guy has the, collection, the largest collection of uh, fungal spores in his freezer anywhere except at the CDC and sends them out to other lab researchers all over the country uh, to look at what uh, antifungals do. And he's looking at fungus in the gut. And his perspective, which is kind of out there, is that actually there's probably some healthy fungus that lives in the gut. My experience has been pretty much fungus in the gut usually seems like a really bad uh, thing other than some yeast species. Uh, like there's some Saccharomyces that probably belongs yeah. in the gut. Yeast is different than actual uh, fungus or mold. What is your take as a guy who's really looked at the gut bacteria thing? Do I want to have some fungus in there or should I just like clean that stuff out every now and then with a nice dose of nystatin and oregano oil and all the other stuff like that? No, I think uh, I think as we're soon going to identify the mycobiome and yeah. that that process is coming out. 
We know that the interaction of bacteria and fungi at plant root level is, is very important. And there's obviously a yin and yang, a mix and match. And, you know, uh, Fred Stamos, mycelium running, thinks that fungi are so critically important for plant nutrition that you can't see straight. But long story short, uh, I think that as we discover this uh, mycobiome, that it's going to have the same role in our health that it does in plant health. And just to go, you know, do, 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 do again, we have to realize that the plant root system is in soil and that soil has its own soil microbiome and that plant is dependent on nutrient absorption but because of the bacteria and the fungi in the soil. Our microvilli are our root system right. and it works exactly like a plant's root system. And our microbiome, our, our holobiome, which is the term I prefer because it includes the fungi and the viruses, uh, our microvilli are embedded in our soil. And the reason we're also screwed up is our soil is also dead, just like our soil that our crops are growing yeah. in. And no wonder we've got such a problem. So it, it's funny that you mentioned the term mycobiome. Uh, the guy I was talking about from Case Western is uh, Dr. Mahmoud Ganmum. He coined the term mycobiome. And uh, since the start of the Bulletproof blog you know, seven years ago, I've been saying, hey, guys, fungus in the gut really matters. Uh, and we just have never had the ability to quantify it. And now right. Viome is doing some quantification of that, but I still feel like we're at the very early days of doing it. And your term, which I haven't actually heard before, of holobiome, it's accurate. And there's probably also something with phages and viruses that are in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we also know flat out, if you eat stuff that's contaminated with glyphosate or straight up antibiotics they feed cows, it's probably going to affect the soil in your gut, just like it ruins the soil on farms that are dumb enough to still spray that stuff on the soil. Um, Correct. How religious are you about only eating organic? Uh, I have an expression, do what, you, do what you can do with what you got wherever you are. <laughs> You can't, I can't always make sure that I'm going to eat organic. One thing I, I become much more adventuresome over in Europe, um, yeah. in parts of Asia than I am here. Although, as you and I both know, uh, glyphosate was approved by the European Union last year. Dumb thanks. Messes. Thanks to Bayer. They're getting the pantsuit off of them, though, right now. Yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> I love that. Sorry, guys, you lose. You shouldn't have bought them. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, but that, yeah, so I think, you know, it, it's so prevalent. Uh, here, here's a really sad thing. I was, uh, I was talking with a chef in Santa Barbara uh, who makes pizza using Italian flour. And I said, oh, you know, wow, that's great. Maybe, you know, maybe I can get away with this. And he says, well, not so fast. Uh, he says, uh, Italians don't grow enough wheat, so they actually import American mm -hmm. wheat and grind it super fine and then ship it back here. I'm like, ah, oh, you're killing me. He said, yeah, <laughs> you're right, I'm killing you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it, Italy's a weird country that way. This fine Italian furniture, a lot of it's made with the worst possible formaldehyde plywood uh, because they lowered their limits so then they could export it back to the US where we like our furniture to smell like death. Yeah. Because formaldehyde is what they use to embalm bodies. That's why it smells like death. Plus it kind of kills you. But it, it's, a, it's a strange thing how these industry will manipulate regulations to allow stuff like that to happen. Uh, it, it, it is true for me. I If I have wheat, which I haven't really had more than once in the last 10 years, which was in Greece, I felt fine. Uh, but before that, I did notice I could eat bread in France. And generally, I felt 10 times better than in the US. And so we're doing something bad to our soil or to our stuff. And it's probably glyphosate, but it could be some other stuff too. All right. I know we're getting up on the end of the show. I feel like we could chat for quite a long time. I would love to know what you talk about in chapter seven in your book, The Longevity Paradox. Look younger as you age. I know I'm certainly doing that. I look like I'm maybe you know, 14 at this point. Okay, just kidding. Uh, and certainly you don't look older than 17. Thank uh, you. What, uh, uh, what are the big things that people are gonna get, are gonna take away from this? I found a picture of me taken in 2008 in June. And then I, I, I did the same pose and I took a picture and put them side by side. So 11 years apart. And uh, if anything, I look the same. Most people have voted that I actually look younger than I did 11 years ago. And uh, so how, how do you do that? And the deal with getting younger is your, your gut, your gut wall is your skin turned inside out. And what happens on the surface of your gut is reflected on the surface of your skin. They are the same organ. So the reason people get thin skin and it gets tearing and you just look at your skin and it falls apart is that that's actually a reflection of the lining of your gut and the thickness of your gut. And it goes back to my preposition that everything, uh, including your skin, uh, happens at the gut level. And so, you know, look at my Instagram post and, and you can vote. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, I kind of the Joe Willie name of I can't wait for tomorrow because I get younger every day to paraphrase him. <laughs> and the, the things in your chapter that you write about are avoiding BPA, uh, which is which is really <laughs> funny. It's really highly present in that flexible uh, credit card receipt paper they use everywhere. Yes, and yes. I've taught my kids, like I just tell the, the people at, at restaurants and everywhere else, they try to hand you that stuff. I'm like, no, thanks. Uh, I, I just don't want the receipt. And my kids, like, they just don't touch it. Like, oh, we don't, we don't want that. And it's not, why do you need a receipt anyway? You can take a picture of it if you need it, but we could just stop wasting paper on receipts at this point. But more importantly, don't rub it all over your skin, especially if you're using uh, the uh, hand sanitizer, which causes it to absorb 10 times more than before. But I, I love it that, you know, you're, a cardiologist, a cardiac surgeon, and you're saying, hey, this BPA stuff matters. Let's get it out of our things. Yeah. Uh, what else? Like, what is azodicarbonamide? Well, that's your yoga mat. Uh, and it's in almost all of our breads and mm. almost all of our crackers. Uh, the other thing people should realize is that most gluten-free foods are raised with transglutaminase, which is actually the real culprit of gluten. And you 
It does not have to be listed on a label. In, in and, other words, most of the grains. So don't eat grains. It's it's not that you shouldn't eat uh, gluten. It's, it's just grains themselves. Yeah, they're they you know they're plant babies, and boy, you know plants have figured this out. They're they're a whole lot smarter than we want to give them credit for. They've had a lot of practice, far more than we have. They have indeed. So I, I love it. You and I are in such agreement there. I went gluten-free many years ago and realized it was more than gluten. I had, you yeah. eat the, the mix of random grains with some garbanzo beans thrown in for extra lectins, and you wonder why you look like crap the next day. Like, well, it wasn't worth it for the pancake. It just wasn't. <laughs> it didn't even taste that good. That's true. You know, it's interesting. I now uh, do a lot of deeper dive into leaky gut tests and food sensitivities. And I can tell you about 90% of people who do react to gluten cross react to corn. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating. Uh, So many of these people and so much corn is in gluten free and so much corn is in everything. But about 90% it's corn that's equally the culprit. And so they're eating gluten-free and they're still got leaky gut and they're going, well, you know, it's not, I guess I am not sensitive to gluten and it's often corn. That's one of the the big things uh, when you say, all right, I'm going to try eliminating this one thing that I think is making me weak. Look, if you're eating five things that knock you on your butt and you eliminate one, you will feel no difference. You got to get rid of all of the suspect things. And, and that's, it's just important. You only do it for a couple of weeks and you'll just see the huge explosion of wellness in your body. And they say, oh, maybe something I was doing and maybe it's only four of the five things and, and you can add them back in one at a time. But the idea that you're going to remove them one at a time, it's just bad science. Like it's, that's not good research methodology. Right. You know, and it's, it's the first principle of my books is it's what I tell you not to eat that's far more important than what I tell you to eat. Yeah, I, I love that. And in your your longevity parasite. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there is a longevity parasite. (laughs) I love that I just said that. I don't even know where that came from. In your longevity parasite book. um, (laughs) By the way, if I had to predict what that was, I would call it rat tapeworm eggs, which I I took for several years uh, as a way of modulating inflammation in my gut. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Mark Hyman and I talked about that on the show. Um, So maybe that's the one. But in, in the longevity paradox... Uh, you talk about you know lifestyle plans. You talk about blue light. You talk about the types of foods to eat and some other things that we didn't uh, we didn't get into in this interview. We'll come but back. It, it's a comprehensive book, and I just have to say your level of credibility. It it's got to be hard for someone to be. Oh yeah, that Gundry guy doesn't know what he's talking about because uh, you sort of have proven your competence in multiple fields at the highest possible level. So that that makes you a game changer uh, on on multiple fronts. Um, have you received a lot of uh, criticism for this? You know, not so much for the longevity paradox. I certainly have my uh, radical vegan critics for the plant paradox. That, the, that's a sign of success, though. You, like, if, if they're not yelling at you, you're not making noise. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. I'm a challenge to their balance, and uh, that's so be it. That's okay. Yeah, it, I, it I, is I, okay. Uh, and I have to tell you, uh, Lectins matter so much. They're they're one of the five big mother nature toxins. You know, mother nature would never harm me. Like, have you ever seen a ever seen a wasp paralyze a spider and then insert eggs inside the paralyzed spider to hatch like an alien in the movie? Yeah, mother nature will harm you unquestionably about that. So, 
the idea that that plants might make something to keep us from eating them, it's not that hard if you're a systems thinker to think, well, if I was a plant, what would I want to do if I couldn't run away? So thank you for helping to popularize that concept because it is real. It is known. The science is so solid. And anyone who says, "Eh, that can't be the case, look, they're just hysteric. But what you're talking about there, it's legit. It's real. And uh, what you're talking about in longevity paradox, you have some theories in there that you identify as theories, uh, ones that I find to be intriguing and ones that I uh, mostly agree with. Uh, so I just have to say thanks for putting it out there and continuing to to push the boundaries, Stephen. You're uh, like you're you're doing amazing work. Appreciate it. And we're gonna you know you're gonna get to 180, and I've uh, you know I've I've limited myself to 150. So. That was my next question for you. So <laughs> your number is 150. Yeah. We have a saying in our clinic uh, that 150 is the new 100, and I, I actually firmly believe that. So are, are you going to be embarrassed if you die before 150? Well, I talk about it. My, uh, uh, people who write longevity books in general don't live very long. Uh, <laughs> they don't feel I embarrassed think, either because if they die early, they're, they're dead. dead. <laughs> and I, I write that my critics will be waiting for me to you know, kiss off very shortly and prove myself wrong. But, you know, Jack LaLanne, who I got to know in his later life, uh, I mean, the godfather of of fitness and nutrition, really, uh, he used to say, I I, I can't die. It's bad for business. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. I love it. And uh, both of us are willing to die trying, uh, even though trying is a weasel word there. Uh, to live uh, to live as long as we can and feel good. And I, I think you're on a, on a great path of that and you're helping a lot of people. Uh, so sure. your new book, The Longevity Paradox, and your website is drgundry.com. And thanks for being on the show. All right. Thanks a lot, Dave. And we'll see you soon, I'm sure. Count on it. If you liked today's episode, you know what to do. Pick up a copy of Longevity Paradox. You are going to love it. And while you're at it, may I suggest you pick up a copy of my newest book, Superhuman. You'll have to pre-order it. But if you were to buy Dr. Gundry's book and pre-order Superhuman, Amazon will do you the favor of telling other people that those are two worthy anti-aging books. Have a beautiful day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.